Amen. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Our text this morning will be in verses 39 through 56. Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. Next week, uh, you're going to have a guest preacher. Uh, We're doing a bit of a pulpit exchange, I guess we could say. Uh, So next week, uh, Mike Law, pastor at Arlington Baptist Church, will be preaching here, and I will be preaching there at Arlington Baptist Church. Uh, I've gotten to know Mike Law through uh, fellowship uh, that I attend uh, regularly, uh, monthly, uh, up in D.C., and he also happens to be the son-in-law of Keith and Cindy Hammett. Don't hold that against Mike, especially related to Keith, but uh, it'll be a treat next week to have him come preach here. I'm looking forward to preaching there, and I hope that you are encouraged in the truth. Let's pray as we open God's word this morning. Father, thank you for your word. We ask now that you would teach us and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. It was a little bit over a year ago that an article came out in The Observer, uh, an article by Susie Meister called, The The Business of Happiness is Booming, But We Are Still Miserable. In the opening paragraph, she writes, I've read countless books about happiness, the art of happiness, handwriting or hardwiring happiness, the secret, all the happiness hits. But rather than maintaining Pollyanna-esque positivity, my personality could be best described as one of the old guys from the Muppet Show. You'd think Americans would have nailed happiness. In addition to countless books on the subject, there are endless amounts of motivational speakers and scientists studying the subject, not to mention the never-ending supply of inspirational posts on social media. Each author, speaker, scientist, and meme has a different prescription for pleasure, but they tend to claim the secrets to happiness are still things like mindfulness, gratitude, positivity, and friendships. The real secret, though, is that we're still miserable. Almost 12% of Americans are on antidepressants and our increasing addictions, opioid and otherwise, have been well documented. It seems the more we seek happiness, the more it eludes us. But despite our collective failure to achieve bliss, we continue to find the quest appealing. And the people who peddle pleasure make a lot of money off of it. I think it's true that people everywhere, including all of us in this room, are seeking to find happiness and experience joy. And oftentimes we find that it eludes us. I want to find uh, our time together helpful as we point to a couple of women in the first chapter of Luke's gospel this morning, because these two ladies have something to teach us very much about the pursuit and finding of joy. That being said, I want to begin reading in Luke chapter 1, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, a town in Judah, She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. 
And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. You know, we pick up here in the first chapter of Luke's gospel, just after Gabriel had visited Mary, as we saw from last week's passage, giving her this news that she would be now with child from the Holy Spirit and she would ultimately bring forth the Messiah into this world. Right after that visit, Mary now goes to Elizabeth, distant relative of hers, to rejoice with her in some good news that she too had received. And as we consider the response of both of these women, first from Elizabeth and then from Mary, I think that they have something to help us with when it comes to the pursuit of joy. When we consider the lives, when we are able to stop for a moment and look at this passage and look into the lives of both Elizabeth and Mary, we learn something very important about what God is doing and how in the midst of all of that, he is the only one that can bring us satisfying joy. You know, you think about the pursuit of joy. We learn very quickly a lot of things about that pursuit. We learn that we cannot market joy. We, we can't manufacture or produce joy. And we certainly, most certainly, cannot buy joy. But brothers and sisters, one of the things that we find this morning is that you most certainly can find it. You can know what true joy is in the Lord. Supernatural joy is a gift from God intended for our good and for his glory. And this is something that not only can you find, you can live in it, no matter the circumstances that you may be faced with this morning. So as Mary and Elizabeth meet together in this part of Luke's gospel, they rejoice in God's favor, they rejoice in God's ultimate provision, and through that they are able to find lasting joy in the Lord. There are models for us in that way and how we too can receive and respond to the Lord in joy. So I want us to see two observations from this passage this morning. We're gonna look at the source of joy and the song of joy. The source of joy and the song of joy. Where do we find it and what does it look like when we find it? First of all, let's look at the the first part uh, as we consider the source of joy. Verses 39 through 45, when we see Mary's Elizabeth, uh, Mary's visit with Elizabeth. What unfolds in this scene is that a young virgin named Mary, as we saw last week, goes now and visits her elderly relative, Elizabeth, both with child, rejoicing together in what God has brought about. Now, it's important for us to see that their joy is not centered in the fact that they are both pregnant at this time. In fact, 
their circumstances would lead you to conclude quite differently. They're not, they're not, one is a virgin and one is an elderly person and they both now are with child. And so their joy is not rooted merely in the fact that they are pregnant, but it goes beyond that. Their joy was centered not in that, but in the fact that they had the inside scoop as to what God was up to and what God was doing and what these two children meant, not just for them, but really for the entire world. So what led to such a joyful response from these two women? I want you to see several things about the source of joy. First of all, I want you to see that joy is rooted, joy is rooted in God's provision. Joy is rooted in God's provision. Elizabeth, upon Mary's arrival, blesses Mary. It says in those days, Mary arose, probably about a three to four day walk from where she was to see Elizabeth. And when Mary arrived, Elizabeth hears her greeting and receives her and blesses her. To bless someone would be to, to in essence, uh, receive a special favor from God. So there's this blessing that is, is there upon Mary and she is one who has received this favor from God. And Elizabeth knows that Mary has been chosen to be the vessel through which the Messiah would enter the world. We know that she knows that because she is filled with the Holy Spirit there in verse 41. It is the Holy Spirit that reveals to her the truth about what Mary was about to do and the important role that she would play in the unfolding of God's redemptive purposes. So both Mary and the child are recognized here as to what God was about to do in bringing salvation to the world. It's a good reminder to us when we consider Elizabeth, her own circumstances, she was with child, she would bring forth John the Baptist. And now Mary with child, she would bring forth Jesus, the Messiah into the world. It's a good reminder as we peer, as we, as we look into the, the life of these two ladies right here at this moment, it's a good reminder to us that, that our perspective can often be too restricted upon our immediate circumstances. Because what you find here in the story of Elizabeth and Mary is that while they were certainly overwhelmed with their immediate circumstances, their perspective was on a much broader reality. And it's that broader reality that their perspective was being informed by that was the ultimate source of their own joy. Elizabeth teaches us something here about the importance of looking at the bigger picture. Joy is, re, is, is really erupting in both Elizabeth and Mary because redemption is drawing near. They are joyful, not because they are pregnant. They are joyful because God is bringing forth his purposes to redeem the world. And it's through these two that ultimately that would come. John being the forerunner, preparing the way for Jesus. And certainly as Jesus enters the world, he would come and bring forth salvation as he accomplishes God's redemptive work. It's a good reminder to us that our, our immediate circumstances are not the true source. They're not to be the true source of lasting joy. I'm not saying that your immediate circumstances are unimportant. Your immediate circumstances are certainly important, but you cannot trust, you cannot seek, you cannot find through immediate circumstances true and lasting 
joy. True joy must be rooted not in circumstances, but in the greater work of what God is doing, has done, is doing, and will do. And oftentimes, I think all of us have probably said this at some time. You know, if my circumstances were just different, I would have joy. If you've not said it, you've thought it. And you've given a list of reasons as to why that is. If I lived in a different place, I would be more joyful. If I made more money, I would be more joyful. If I had a different house, I would be more joyful. If I had this, if I had that, if I did this or did that, if I didn't have this, more joy. And so what we're doing is we're thinking that somehow our circumstances have to do with whether or not we are truly joyful people. And if our circumstances were only different, we would have more joy. Fellow Christians, your circumstances, your temporal circumstances are not the true source of joy. I know we're tempted to think at times, if my circumstances were only different. Listen, if you're a Christian, your circumstances are different. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were walking in the midst of darkness. You now have been delivered from that reality and brought into newness of life through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Friends, if anyone in the world has had changed circumstances, it is that of the believer. And that is every reason you need to find true and lasting joy. Brothers and sisters, I just ask you this morning, do you regularly find yourself rejoicing in the truth of God's redemption in Jesus Christ. Is that a regular thing that you celebrate? I'm not talking about just on Sunday mornings, which we are going to do our very best to celebrate, rejoice in. Is this, true? Is this something that you regularly meditate upon? Do you regularly rejoice in God's gift of grace to you? Or has it become too familiar? Has grace become something that's, that you've presumed upon too much? Brothers and sisters, the source of true and lasting joy is rooted in God's provision. This is exactly what you see Mary and Elizabeth doing. They are rejoicing in, in the fact that they now have this inside scoop that, that redemption is drawing near. The Messiah is coming into the world. And that is where their joy is rooted. That is where their joy is rooted. One of the reasons we see more and more joyless people in our communities is because we're seeking it in all the wrong places. We're seeking it in money, in travel, in relationships, in promotion, in homes, on and on we could go. But none of these things are designed to sustain our hearts with true joy. None of them are designed to, to give you that. But brothers and sisters, when you go to the source the provision of a redeemer, you will know what true joy is. Not only is joy rooted in God's provision, joy is grounded in the right confession. After extending a blessing, Elizabeth says, notice what she says, it's interesting. So the baby leaps in her womb. In verse 42, she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then notice verse 43. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? It's an amazing statement, both in what she says and in 
the one that's saying it. Elizabeth is an elderly lady, wife of a priest, who would have been seen as the superior over Mary. Not to mention she's the, one of the daughters of Aaron. She's, she's come from a priestly line. She's married to a priest. She would have been culturally a superior in every way. But because of what was revealed to her, she places herself in a humble posture, in a servant's role, and she honors Mary, this teenage girl. Notice how she refers to Mary, the mother of my Lord. She confesses this small child in Mary's womb as her Lord. It's an absolutely amazing statement. This term Lord is one of messianic respect. It's likely that Elizabeth didn't know the complexities of all that the Lordship of Jesus Christ meant at that period of time, but she did know this. She understood that that baby in Mary's womb was the Messiah and was the one that she would call Lord. Elizabeth is joyful because she understands that the Messiah is on his way. It's interesting, as a side note, we often acknowledge that it was likely Peter who came out with one of the first early confessions of who Jesus was, where Peter in Matthew 16, verse 16 says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, but it's actually a woman named Elizabeth that gives one of the very first confessions of the lordship of Christ right here in this passage as she says to Mary, you are the mother of my Lord, recognizing exactly who this Jesus is. Two truths about this confession we need to see. First of all, this confession empowered. How was Elizabeth able to make this confession? Did she just figure out this on her own? No, as I said earlier, she was filled with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit had come upon her and filled her, illuminating her understanding of all that was going on. It was by the Holy Spirit that she was able to see and confess this truth. Now, this is a very important theological point. 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul in chapter 12, verse 3 says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This confession Elizabeth makes here about the Lordship of Christ, this confession that anyone would make, Jesus is Lord, it actually became an early confession in the early church, often associated with people's baptisms. They would come to be baptized and profess Jesus is Lord. It would make this verbal statement, the, this, this understanding that, of who Jesus is. But listen, brothers and sisters, you are not able to conclude this on your own. It is a work of the Holy Spirit that awakens your eyes and ears and reality to who, who he is, that you're able to make that kind of conclusion. And so that's why we want to pray for this work to go forth in this world. This, this confession was empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit, but notice this confession expressed, Elizabeth was overwhelmed. Again, not just because of pregnancies, she was overwhelmed because of what they pointed to. Again, it wasn't likely that she understood the full significance of the implications of the arrival of these two children. She, she was piecing these pieces together by the revelation of the Holy Spirit and certainly through her familiarity with the Old Testament, all the prophecies pointing forward. I think she serves us here as a wonderful example of faith. She was able to call upon Jesus as Lord even before he was born. 
Friends, how much more should we affirm the Lordship of Christ having the full record of all that Jesus has done? Elizabeth got it early on, before he was even born. How much more after the fact should we too realize the fullness of who Jesus is after we have seen recorded for us throughout the scriptures that he came, he lived, he died, he was raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven and he's coming again. As this confession was expressed, it should be a confession that we often eagerly share ourselves. Are we acknowledging and expressing the lordship of Christ both in word and deed? Another truth about the source of joy is that joy is cultivated through God's revelation. Look at verse 44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken from her Lord. Now the Holy Spirit reveals these things directly to Elizabeth and she proclaims the truth concerning the Messiah. But notice what else she says with reference to Mary. She says, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken from her Lord. Notice Elizabeth says, Mary knew her Bible. Mary understood exactly what was to come, come about. It was because of her understanding and familiarity with the truth of God's revealed word that she was able to be sustained in her joy. She was able to understand now through what God was revealing to her through the angel, through the Holy Spirit, all these things were about to take place, that these were in direct fulfillment of what had been spoken prior. Mary's also a great example of faith in that regard. She receives a word from the Lord, she's familiar with the word of the Lord and she believes it. Against all the natural and logical reasons to not believe, she chooses to believe and take God at his word. In that sense, Mary models for us what it looks like for one to be satisfied in God's word even when things around us seem to be telling us otherwise. I mean, she's a virgin and she's just been told she's going to have a baby. She's able to rejoice because she knows and believes God's word. Blessings and joy come to those who hear and take God at his word and they rely upon his promises. Listen, faith and joy are inseparable. You cannot have joy apart from faith. And it is faith that is cultivated by the promises of God in the word of God that are able to give and sustain us with true joy. Cultivated through God's revelation. Before we move on to Mary's song briefly, I want you just to see something, a little side note about Elizabeth here. Just in her response to Mary coming. Elizabeth had every reason to rejoice in her own circumstances. She was now going to have a baby and was excited because of what this baby's purpose would be. John the Baptist would come and be the forerunner and prepare the way of the Lord, just as the Old Testament had said. She's actually living fulfillment in herself. She had reason enough on her own to be filled with joy, but notice that she goes out of her way, it seems, to rejoice in the good news that Mary had received. Don't miss this. 
She wasn't seeking to minimize God's work in Mary so she would look bad, better in some way, but rather she humbled herself and pointed to the goodness of what God was doing in Mary's life, the grace that God had shown Mary and was celebrating that. Friends, we would do so well to take this cue from Elizabeth. When was the last time? When was the last time you sought to maximize the work of God's grace, not in yourself, but in another person's life? When was the last time that you took time to point out evidences of God's goodness and generosity and grace in someone else and rejoiced in that rather than in your own life? It's the last time you did that. Instead of looking to the blessings that someone else may be experiencing, instead of responding in envy or jealousy or bitterness because they seem to be recipients of God's favor, when is the last time, instead of responding in those negative ways, that you simply rejoiced in the kindness and goodness of God? in someone else's life, in another church's life, another ministry. Maybe, maybe, maybe you, you're not experiencing these blessings yourself. Maybe we as a church aren't experiencing the same kinds of blessings that we see happening in other places. When's the last time that we rejoiced in God's favor upon another? This is exactly what you see Elizabeth doing here in humility, humbling herself, rejoicing in how God had shown favor to Mary. Friends, joy does not come by drawing attention to ourselves. You will never get enough likes on social media to sustain your joy, ever. True joy comes from seeing God's work of grace, yes, in your own life, but also in the lives of others. The source of joy comes ultimately in the redemption that God has given us in Jesus Christ. I want you to see the song of joy, this, this expression of joy as Mary begins to delight and she goes through this well-known song that we have recorded here in Luke's gospel beginning in verse 46. This text moves on now to Mary's response and Mary magnifies the Lord for his work of redemption. She just walked through it. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Why? For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud with the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. She rejoices. She magnifies the Lord for his great work of redemption. Listen, joyful people are singing people. That's a whole other sermon. Joyful people are singing people. As we look at this song, Mary praises God because he sees, he acts, and he speaks. You see it right here in the text. Real quick, let's walk through it. First of all, it affirms that God sees. Notice she says, my spirit rejoices for or because he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Two things we should take note of here in Mary's life. Notice she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. First of all, she recognizes her own need of a savior. She says, 
for God my Savior. She's simply saying right there, just in passing, that she's no different than anyone else. She too needs a Savior. The idea of an immaculate conception, which is often taken to conclude that Mary was somehow sinless, is not an idea we get from the Bible. It's not an idea we certainly don't get from Mary. She's not under that impression. She's under the impression that she too is a sinner in need of salvation. Why else would she call God her savior? She also recognizes her status as a young teenage girl from Nazareth. She would have been considered in that day and time a nobody from nowhere. Just a common girl most people outside of her own family would have never taken notice of. An unlikely candidate to be a part of something so big. And Mary understood this position. She understood her situation quite well. She understood she was one of humble estate. But she also knew who God was. Notice she, she, she compares her own self here to, to the reality of God's Sovereignty, his holiness. She says, for he, my Savior, my God, my Savior, has looked on the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations, she prophesies here. She says, for all generations from now on will call me blessed. And we're living fulfillment of that even this morning as we talk about the blessing Mary received. And she says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. She recognizes the mightiness, the holiness, the sovereignty of God and yet her own lowly condition. And she affirms that God in his holiness yet saw her in her lowliness and still extended favor upon her. God often chooses to work in that way. God often chooses to work not in the mighty, not in the powerful, not in the strong, not in the wealthy, but in the lowly, in the poor. For God chose what is weak in this world to despise the strong. God often chooses to work in and through the lowly. Just yet another reminder that God sees our states and that no one is too common or too small or too insignificant to remain outside of God's gaze and outside of God's favor. God sees us all and he works in our lives. And he's, I don't think you can read the scripture and not conclude that God has a particular affection for the lowly, for the weak, for the despised of this world. And that's exactly what we see taking place here. Mary is thrilled that God in all his greatness would choose to extend favor upon someone like her. What a great encouragement. It affirms that God sees us. Friends, God sees us all. No matter who you are this morning, Jeremy made this point so good last week as he talked about how God sees all of us, no matter your condition, no matter your status. God sees you and he knows you. And he extends grace and favor. It affirms that God sees. It affirms, number two, that God acts. In verse 48 we see that he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. In verse 49, it says that God acts, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. She sets forth this high view of God. She highlights his work and power and holiness here. 
And then she goes on to account for his activity in a variety of different ways. First of all, she acknowledges that he extends mercy to the humble. This mercy here is a term that's used to refer to God's covenant love, his faithful love, his merciful, loyal commitment to his covenant people. It was this mercy that then prompted, that, that prompted God to make covenant with his people, and it's this same mercy that leads God to continue relationship with them. So Mary's humility is the result of someone who genuinely sees God in all his awesomeness and realizes that he has extended favor to someone like her. This, this joy just radiates, it erupts out of her because she gets what God is doing. He has every right to shut us all out because none of us are perfect like him. None of us are righteous in and of our own strength. None of us can maintain that standard. And yet he extends mercy. Friends, true humility is an evidence that God's grace has affected our hearts. Think of how Mary could have responded. She could have responded, well, look at me. Look at what I've been called to do. I think some errantly have gone on to really venerate and popularize Mary, almost making her the fourth member of the Trinity. I think right here you see Mary understands very clearly her role and her place. She understood exactly who God was and she ex understood exactly who she was and she responded simply in trusting God, believing him for what he would do. You might say, well, good for Mary. What hope does that give me? Kind of how we read the Bible often. I'm glad that worked out for them. What about me? Right? We're so selfless in reading the scriptures these days. Well, friends, Mary has a word for you. Look at verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary was not the only one that had been gifted mercy and favor. She says this same mercy, this same favor is available to all who would fear God and that would be true from generation to generation to generation. God's mercy is not limited. Her song progresses from her own individual experience to a wider application. This same mercy is available to all. But there's a qualifier. It's not universally applied mercy. It's mercy for those who would fear God. Those who have eyes to see the reality and truth of who God is, understand their own lowly state and humble condition themselves, and respond in faith to what God has provided. Friends, it would do us all well to remember our condition and status in light of God's position. He extends mercy to the humble, but also he executes justice to the proud. Look at this. Mary continues her song and praises God for his strength. Look at what he's doing. He scattered the proud. He's brought down the mighty. He sent the rich away empty. Listen, God is not indifferent to sin, and he will bring justice to the proud. God turns our standards of greatness upside down in this text. He, he says it's actually the humble those who fear God, those who are lowly, that God will bless, and those who want to build themselves up in pride and strength that God will actually bring down. It's a reminder and a warning for us all. Great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, can you not see that everything that man boasts in, his intellect, his understanding, his power, 
his social status, his influence, his righteousness, his morality, his ethics, every one of them is demolished by the Son of God. Those who remain in their pride, God will bring down. This is most likely language that's pointing to the future. I want you to, to get this. He's, Mary's likely pointing to what's going to happen in that great day in the end when, when all will be made new and all, will be, all wrongs will be right. It's eschatological language. It's language that's yet to, to, to unfold. The, the, the realities of what she's speaking of is yet to unfold. But notice she speaks of future realities in past tense. This is a common thing that you have in the Bible. She's talking about future reality, but using past tense to refer to it, which is a way to show us the confidence and the assurance that's present in knowing that what God will one day do. God's judgment will fall. But notice how his judgment stands right beside his grace. In these same verses where the powerful, the wealthy, the proud are condemned, we also see that God exalts those of humble estate. He fills the hungry with good things. And the very child in Mary's womb would be the very one that would come as God's strong arm. In fact, it would be God's strong arm that would fall upon this child eventually, where he would take upon himself the justice God demands, and yet the very one through whom his mercy would flow as he died on a cross to shed his blood for our sin. This song affirms that God acts, and he has, and he will. But lastly, it affirms that God speaks. As Mary concludes her song, she points to the fact that God had kept his promise. Again, we know that Mary knows her Bible. She wouldn't have had access to all the things we have access to today. She would have just been a faithful attender, probably to the local synagogue, reading and hearing what was spoken of in the Old Testament. And she had now, in her own mind, empowered by the Spirit, brought these conclusions together and understood. Because it says there in verse 54, we can see that she knew her Bible quite well. As he says there, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. She knew Genesis 3. She knew Genesis 12. She knew Genesis 15. She knew Genesis 17. She understood that the promises, the covenant promises made to Abraham long ago, God was keeping those through. And now, crazy as it was, she's the vessel through which this son of David would come. This king would come, and she rejoices. She's saying here, look, God has kept his word, not to just Israel, but to all the peoples of the world. Mary knew exactly what was going to happen. So when we play that crazy song this Christmas season, Mary, did you know? Just do what I do. Yes, she knew. <laughs> she knew. It affirms that God speaks. Friends, the virgin conception and eventual birth is the ultimate validation that God keeps his word. Everything in the Old Testament had pointed to this moment. She had read it, she had heard it, and she had believed it. But here's the good news. As blessed as Mary was, friends, aren't we in a better position today? She was limited. Yes, one day she would look at the foot of a cross and see her own son crucified. But he would die and three days later be raised from the dead, ascend into heaven. And we've seen now throughout the course of human history, the work of grace. We've seen this fulfillment 
of grace extending to generation after generation. Friends, we're in a better position even than Mary was, even though she bore the Messiah and brought him into this world. We now can look back and see the completion of all that he's done. And the promise to come again. She was able to make the connection of all that God had spoken to that point. But friends, we now have it all. We have the complete revelation of God. We can look back and see all that this child would accomplish and all that's gone forth since then. And friends, we too can be encouraged that God does exactly as he says. You know, at the beginning, I referenced that article about the business of happiness in America, and yet we're still all miserable. And that article, Susie Meister concludes, she said, you know, we read books, we have faith, we buy things, we purge stuff, but we're still chasing happiness. Maybe the pursuit itself is actually preventing its manifestation, but I will probably still read another book on how to rewire my brain for joy, follow Instagram accounts featuring pictures of organized homes, and buy stuff because a celebrity told me to. And I think what Susie Meister will find out over time is that she's still miserable. Both Elizabeth and Mary are wonderful models for us of where we can actually find true joy. Against all the odds, they trusted the word of God and were blessed to be part of the unfolding plan of God through in his redemption. No wonder Mary was singing. No wonder the church has been singing ever since. Friend, can you join in Mary's song today? Do you share this same joy that these two women expressed? Joy is something that has eluded many, including many of you, but it doesn't have to. And don't, take, don't just take my word for it. Take it from the word of an elderly priest wife and a young teenage virgin. They will point you to where true joy can be found. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise this day for what you've given us. Lord, we realize this morning that we all pursue joy in so many different places, Lord, oftentimes in the wrong place. We think somehow that if we can just find a different circumstance or a different something, that automatically we will find that joy we've been looking for all along. Father, would you help us in our joylessness, in our lack of true happiness, realize that the only lasting fountain of joy is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Father, it doesn't mean that our circumstances are unimportant. They are important. It doesn't mean that our situations don't matter. They do. But Father, for the peace and joy that lasts forever, that can only be found in what you've given us in Christ. Lord, we thank you for these two women that teach us so much about where and how to find such lasting joy. God, would you encourage us that, with that this morning? And Father, my prayer is that for those who may be here that are struggling to, to walk in joy today, that they would be encouraged and reminded and pointed
to the true source of joy, and that is in you through what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, would you help us all to find delight in him and that we would walk in joy, not just today, tomorrow, but for all the days you give us. We pray this in Christ's name.